Welcome to this episode of the Enterprising Gen Z podcast. This is the weekly show where we talk to some of the top entrepreneurs and industry professionals from around the world to inspire and empower you guys, the next generation of young founders. My name is Sam Watson. I'm a 19-year-old entrepreneur from North London, now living and studying in Paris while I complete my business degree. I'm the CEO and founder of Enterprising Gen Z Events. We're an events company that brings the value of the podcast into real life to inspire and empower you guys. We create events directly tailored towards Gen Z to inspire these connections that make entrepreneurs successful. We also allow companies to market their products directly to an audience of Gen Z entrepreneurs and professionals through these events. On this week's show, I'm talking to Shweb Ahmed, the founder and director of Yellow Hippo. Yellow Hippo is a personal branding agency based in Manchester. Yellow Hippo helps founders, creators and C-suite executives build their authority on LinkedIn. Now, as you can probably tell, this is one of the longest episodes we've ever recorded. And there's a good reason why, it's because some of the topics we covered are genuinely incredibly interesting. If you want to find out more about the podcast or Yellow Hippo, please head over to the show notes where you can find all the relevant links. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy. Hey Shweb, how are you doing? Hey, I'm good. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thank you. Um, so the first thing I think would be good to do is just to introduce yourself and tell everybody who you are and what you do. I'm Schweib. Um, I'm the founder and director of Yellow Hippo. We're a personal branding agency based in Manchester. And uh, we help founders, uh, creators, C-suite executives build their personal brands on LinkedIn, help them build authority, generate business leads, PR opportunities, build their visibility online, et cetera, et cetera. If you could sum up what Yellow Hippo does into like a few things, what would you say like the main things you do for clients are? So we have two kind of main services and, and they both have the, you know, the same objective. It's to help build brand awareness, not for the business itself, but for the person behind the business, the person running the business. So we can take any individual and we, we brand them to become almost business entities in themselves. What that means is um, we, we build their social following, we create content for them, but working very collaboratively um, with, with clients. Uh, and, and in that process, we obviously help them generate business opportunities, PR opportunities, um, connect with the right people. You know, we've had some clients land international speaking gigs, generate six-figure deals based on the back off their LinkedIn content, which right now is like the best platform to be um, for B2B people especially. And um, if you could kind of sum up some personal branding tips, like pretty basically, what kind of the, the biggest tips you'd give? Oh, good question. Um, I'd say it starts with knowing exactly what you want to get out of personal branding, right? So if you're a business owner, it might be you want to generate business leads, you might want to attract talent into your organization, it might be to raise investment. If you're a student, it might be to generate job opportunities in the future. Um, It might be to just kind of build your profile and build your network. So I think, you know, there's loads of different ways of doing personal branding. The main thing is knowing exactly what your long-term objective is and then creating content around that to help fulfill that. And honestly, just like starting, I think that's the hardest thing to do. Start creating content, learn as you go, um, talk about yourself. You know, I always say that personal branding is 80% personal and 20% branding because, you know, we live in a, in a world where people learn from people and, and people trust people before they trust business. Um, so yeah, there's there's a few little tips, but um, I'd be here all day if I tried to give you any more. <laughs> <laughs> I find it, I find growing on LinkedIn, like I, I've been working quite hard for like the past four months. Um, actually, when I say working quite hard, I've been posting twice a week when I like never used to post before. And actually the effects it's had is kind of crazy. So I started posting like properly about four months ago. Um, and I've like, I've had like tens and tens and tens of thousands of views and like four or five people asking to come on the show every, every day through my inbox, through my website. So the effects it's kind of had is kind of crazy. And if I actually went to it properly, like I know some people, um, post like three times a day, like if I went at it properly, I know that would just go mental, but I don't have enough time to do all of that. Um, I want to move on to like your personal journey yourself. So you graduated last year. And now you're like running a really successful business. So that happened so quickly. Um, and I, we, we spoke a while ago about what you did at university and you had a year in the industry. Um, I was just wondering how your year in industry potentially impacted you to kind of do what you're doing now. Yeah. So I actually studied geography at university, which is very, very different to what I do today, day to day. Um, 
And whilst I was there, I was trying to land work experience, but I didn't 100% know what I wanted to do long term or what kind of career industry I would go down. So I thought the best way to kind of figure that out is to test run, almost trial run a career. And so marketing seemed interesting to me at the time. And I thought I could do an internship over summer or I could like fully immerse myself into a business for 12 months and just gain some really solid experience. And that's what I chose to do. I worked for a marketing and media agency based in London and it was a relatively small company. Um, I think around 45 employees at the time, um, one office in, in Brixton, South London. And um, that just completely transformed every, everything I did after that point. Um, it helped me you know, land loads of really major opportunities that somebody at, how old was I, 20, um, really typically wouldn't get. And it's because I had that experience, I had that industry exposure, I'd built contacts in the marketing industry. And I think more importantly, I'd I just got hands-on into the working world. I think you can learn about marketing all you want on YouTube and courses and online. But actually doing it, you learn at just a hundred times the pace. Um, so that was invaluable, not just for me to learn the ins and outs of marketing, but also gain exposure to different job roles within that field, whether that's social media management, email marketing, SEO, paid ads, digital marketing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, I met some really amazing people, mentors who to this day I still speak to and who've kind of almost like guided me and also given me a lot of confidence. I think that's what placement year can do or just a year in industry, whatever you want to call it. Um, it gives you a lot of confidence so that when you leave university, you're not kind of just struggling to find work or not sure what to do next. You have a bit more of a strategy in place and a bit more of a plan to guide your kind of career as you move forward. So yeah, I, I loved my placement year and I would definitely recommend to any student who, who's listening to this to do the same. I completely agree with you. The reason why I actually chose my degree that I'm doing now here in Paris is because they offered, I think it's to, to a year's worth of uh, internships and they kind of, um, they structure them in going kind of like doing a labor job. So like a waiter for a couple of months, all the way up to like managing a team for, I, I can't remember how many months it is. They kind of give you the full spectrum of work. Um, and I think learning from experience um, is the best way to learn in my opinion because that's how actually I read an article about this it's actually how humans learn humans learn by contextualizing information to life experiences and that's how like through my exams I learned so I agree that I think like experience is the most important way to learn um, I want to move on now um, there's a lot of media narrative um, I don't want to name names about you know potential entrepreneurs not media sorry social media narrative of I don't want to name the, the people who are putting it out there but kind of showing that being an entrepreneur is so easy and it's it's kind of smooth and you're getting all oh, 10k a month da, 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 da. Um, and I was just interested because you started your business basically like super super young you know graduating university I was interested what the reality of starting a business at a really young age was for you uh-huh um, what I would say, because I've also seen this narrative a lot, if I hadn't done a placement year and if I hadn't gained some agency experience for six, seven months before I started my business, I don't think I would have been able to do it. So I know this is narrative you can just instantly, almost overnight, turn a skill into a business, monetize a skill online and rake in the cash. And I don't think that's necessarily true. I think having that experience beforehand is is invaluable and especially i would recommend working in a startup because if you want to go into business working in a startup is going to give you that exposure to all the different elements of the business that you have to think about now the service that i provide is personal branding but actually that it, it, in the agency job i had before i set up as a freelancer that was what I was doing. I was just doing personal branding day to day. But then when I became a freelancer, my job role was completely different. As well as servicing clients through personal branding, I was a HR person, I was the accountant, I was the sales guy, and I was doing every different job in the business that you could think of. And then obviously when I transitioned from a freelancer into an agency, and again, it changed. Um, so there's a lot of fast learning that has to happen. And I think you have to be very, very resilient to be able to kind of 
just survive and, and grow and scale. And every knockback you get, you have to be able to kind of just like quickly brush yourself off and move on. Otherwise, I think, you know, this is a business is a roller coaster and it's such a cliche, but it completely is. Um, like this month um, on paper is going to be our lowest uh, revenue month. And next month is going to be our highest ever month. Within the space of 14 days, we're going to go from lowest to highest revenue um and you know like i could have when i saw the stats i'll be like oh, oh like this isn't great we're, we've gone a bit backwards here but it's about like actually we've gone a bit backwards that's the business world it's never going to be a smooth linear trajectory upwards things change things beyond your control um so i think it's hard and you have to be resilient but equally i don't want to put people off by saying that um at the start when i became a freelancer i i didn't really know what i was doing and Every single business person that I've spoken to has said the exact same thing. When you start, you make it up as you go um, and you develop confidence. You learn from all the failures. You optimize things as you go. You build systems and processes until eventually you've got more of a stable structure to work with. And it is definitely doable. I think if you do have a skill and if you're passionate about something, there's always a way to monetize that and turn it into a business opportunity. And we're seeing it now on LinkedIn. There's so many young creators who were posting on the platform and then realized, actually, I've got a skill here that I can support other business people with. Um, so I think LinkedIn, again, has played a massive part in my business. Obviously, we our service is LinkedIn-based, but I wouldn't be able to have set up my business if it wasn't for the network that I'd built on LinkedIn. Um, other freelancers who I was learning from, other people in the personal branding space who, again, I was learning from, and then obviously clients as well. Uh, Yellow Hip Hour agency is 100% inbound. I've never sent a cold DM, cold email. We don't have a sales team. It's purely interest coming my way through my LinkedIn profile. Um, so if you are a business, I think LinkedIn is definitely the social media platform to be on, uh, to grow, to learn, to generate opportunities, um, etc. It's really interesting you mentioned your how you how you've scaled and um, how you've grown. Also, the inbound leads thing was was very interesting. Um, and you, when we spoke a while ago, you said that you did you weren't interested or you didn't want to be the biggest personal branding agency. Um, and I was just interested why that was because I think I, I don't know if that that's quite an uncommon perspective to have in business. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Personal branding as an, as an industry, as a space, is growing at such a rapid pace that it's almost incomparable to anything else. If you think of marketing when that industry blew up, what followed was social media marketing. When social media was really taking off that that industry and the number of agencies working in that space just blew up. It was just like an exponential curve. And that's, I think, what we're seeing now with personal branding. It's the next big facet of marketing um so for me there's so there's so many people in this space and there's so much competition now especially with more freelancers coming into the space which i'm 100 here for i started as a freelancer and i think it's a great entry point into business um but my intention has never been to be the biggest one in this very what i think will become a very crowded space i think it's better to have a, a usp and that for us, that USP is working very closely with clients, working very collaboratively, building those deep relationships. We're not just an agency who want to take on 60, 70 clients, hire loads of part-time people and just deliver subpar service. That is not our objective. Um, I think we're definitely going for quality over quantity and that's shown in our results. There's other personal branding agencies in our space and who this year have published some of their stats in terms of how many views they've got for clients, how many followers they've got for clients, the ROI, um, return on investment. And you know, we've we've surpassed them. We've hit 85 million views this year across client content with about 15, 20 clients. And there's agencies out there with 60, 70 clients who have a team of 15 people compared to our team of three or four and who've got nearly half of the views we've got. So I think something can be said for not trying to grow too quickly. If you grow too quickly, you're more likely to make mistakes. You're probably going to have a low retention rate. You're not giving enough time and headspace to each of your clients. Um, so for me, I would much rather work with people that I enjoy working with. You know, I started a business because I 
wanted more control ultimately over the things we were doing, the service I was providing and who I was working with. So it would be silly of me to just take on everybody who came through the door, um, even if they were a bad client, because I wouldn't enjoy what I, I, I was doing. And I, I set up a business because I wanted just to have total freedom with who I work with. And and that means working with fewer clients, but working with clients I really enjoy working with. And that just makes our results better, our team happier. I think it's just a, a better strategy overall. When you say you want to become an entrepreneur because you want control of, of what you were doing, I, I'm just interested to know kind of what's your favorite bit about entrepreneurship and being your own boss? For me, I'm, I've always loved building things. Um, and I said this the other day to one of my friends and they, they laughed because they were like, what do you mean building things? Um, and what I mean by that is for me, when I started the business, it was never about uh, quick cash. It was never to be really rich. Like I know that's, I think, the stereotype. You see those like motivational videos on YouTube and it's like the hustle and the grind and you make loads of money and then you get invited to all these VIP events and you have the cars and the designer clothes and that has never ever appealed to me. What I really enjoy is taking an idea or, or like a concept and bringing it to life and building a community around that and creating things from scratch and seeing like, okay, this is what we've built. Um, and I had that moment when we launched the Yellow Hippo brand um, in August and I, I, I saw the video, I saw the website, I saw our social media page and I saw other people talking about Yellow Hippo and uh, I, I go to events and people know the brand. And for me, that is something that I really enjoy, knowing that I've built something that has an impact on other people. Um, and of course, on our clients especially, they see the results and the, the rewards of working with us. So I think that's the most important. And the thing that I enjoy, the thing that I enjoy the most in business is having something tangible that I can say, we did that. And it's growing and it's great and we're helping people and we've made we've made some noise and we've stamped our mark in this industry. When you when you talk about like your company brand and how you've grown, um, like I can see you're wearing your hello yeah, hello, your yellow uh hippo hoodie, like I'm wearing my enterprising Gen Z hoodie. Um how important is being your brand to you, do you think? Massively, massively, massively. I think so just to give some context to this, in January, I started as a freelancer. In April, we turned into an agency. And I only launched the Yellow Hippo brand, the company name, in August. So for all that time, I was kind of just operating as, as me. The brand was just Shweb Ahmed, and we didn't have a business name. We didn't have any kind of branding, company colors, or anything like that. Um, and it was when we launched the, the Yellow Hippo brand that everything kind of came together. Um, it, everything felt cohesive. Uh, our clients knew exactly what we were doing, our values. I think also the way we built our brand, it was very much driven by what we do and our mission. Um, we create very personality-driven content. We work with founders collaboratively to showcase who they are, their values, their belief systems, their philosophies. Um, and so when I created Yellow Hippo, that was me putting my personal brand into a company brand. I wanted something that was kind of bright, vibrant, something that felt personal to me. You know, my favorite color is yellow. My favorite animal is a hippo. One of the first LinkedIn posts that I did that kind of blew up was a picture was a picture of me in a yellow jumper. And one of my best friends had um, hand drawn and painted a hippo on it. And that was kind of one of the first LinkedIn posts on my account that blew up. So that was almost like our origin story. So for me, like having just this, the Yellow Hippo brand encapsulates that journey of, of me as a freelancer to today, but also showcases the kind of character and the people in the team of Yellow Hippo and how we work with clients as well. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I Whenever I step out of the house, I always wear this hoodie. Like, I always wear it. And I was walking uh, through, like, one of the biggest train stations. It's, like, full of business people. Uh, and I saw these young guys were, like, staring at me. Um, and one of them especially was, like, looked like he wanted to come up. And I was, like, I looked at him. And I just knew immediately, like, he listens. He knows what, he knows my <laughs> podcast. Um, it was really funny. And I... I get people ask me, like I went clubbing in this in this hoodie the other day and like everyone looks to be a bit weirdly, but I don't care. Like I'm promoting my brand. If one person goes and looks up yeah, enterprising Gen Z when they finish, like whatever, that's fine. It's funny it's funny you say that because um yesterday I was on a shoot with a uh, photo shoot with our, one of our new employees and one of our clients. And um 
I batch ordered these hoodies so a lot of the people in our team our clients people close to the business have, have got one and one of our clients posted it on her Instagram story and then I reshared it onto my Instagram and I had seven DMs of people saying oh can I buy the hoodie or where could I get a hoodie and it's just like crazy that that brand it's just a plain yellow hoodie with a little logo um and the reach of that obviously it, it has grown quite a lot genuinely yesterday i was considering is this like a second business is this is this a revenue stream i've probably had like 40 or 50 people since we launched asking if they can get a hoodie and i think that just shows the power of branding ultimately i'm gonna be honest nobody's asked me to buy a hoodie from me i think uh i think the design is this nice <laughs> it's, it's the color it's a bright yellow it's the bright yellow that does it. Yeah, I haven't shown you the back. <laughs> On the back, I've just got like the logo again in massive and then my podcast website and my events business website. So it's kind of more of like a promotional tool than like something to look nice. Um, but I also want to, because you, you talked about earlier about you move from an agent, from a being a freelancer to an agency owner so quickly. I want to understand what motivated you to kind of make that change and how it happens so quickly. If you want the completely blunt, honest answer, it made uh, tax sense to do so. It made sense in in tax terms to convert into an agency um, for the new tax year because we'd already hit kind of the benchmark and it it just made sense uh, in that way. That was advice from my accountant. Um, But I think ultimately how it happened was as a freelancer, I was growing quite quickly. People, I was getting more DMs and inbound leads than I was able to service. So I had to say no to probably 50% of the people who reached out to me to work with me. And also what happened in that process was I'd built up a waiting list and I thought, okay, this is bigger than just me now. It's all these different people I wanted to work with us. I had a couple of part-time people working for me then and everything just felt a bit incohesive in terms of the brand, there really wasn't one. Um, I didn't really have any solid systems or processes in place. If I was ill, for example, the business would probably have collapsed (laughs) if I wasn't able to work. So I thought, okay, we need to build this out into something more tangible with structure, with foundations. And that's why I decided to um, really go ham with the agency side of stuff, hire people, um, bring in support. I had a business coach come in, I had an accountant and just legitimize everything that we were doing um and i think that has really set us up for especially today and like moving forward uh next month's going to be our biggest month ever we've got loads of kind of new clients coming in current clients are upgrading their packages and i think that's that's because we have the, the structure the systems and everything is a bit more stable and i think that comes with having an, a solid agency and the foundations of that You've got new clients coming in this month um, and you said you're, you're, you're completely operating off inbound leads. You're not looking for any clients. You don't have a sales team you talked about earlier. How are you finding these clients and how are you attract? Is it, is it your per- personal brand, which is attracting people or kind of what's the X factor, which is making your like lead generation completely like organic? Yeah. So um, it is ultimately my personal brand. Uh, on LinkedIn. So even before I started as a freelancer, and part of the reason why I did start was because I was getting so many DMs um, when I was working at my old agency, asking for me to kind of work with them. Um, And I didn't at the time because I was passing all the leads that I I was getting through my personal LinkedIn to uh, the agency that I was working for. And I thought, actually, there's so many inquiries coming my way. And there's a real opportunity here for me to do something with that. And over time, I've been consistent on LinkedIn, posting content for clients, basically doing what I do for for our clients. I was doing it for myself. And that is 100% how we got all our leads. I reckon we've had about 75 to 100 leads in the last eight, nine months. Um, and we, you know, we haven't taken all of them on. We're very specific with who we work with because I'm, I don't want to just take on clients who I know we're not a good fit for. What, my, what I mean by that is there's people who've reached out to me and they're trying to raise a profile of their business or generate leads. And sometimes it makes more sense for them to do maybe Facebook ads because they have such a niche um, industry that it it needs to be more targeted, their marketing. Or sometimes it might be a B2C product. And then I say, okay, actually, you need to be on TikTok because that's where your audience is. So I think 
I'm very honest with with people when they when they come to us, and I will say no to them. I've equally given a lot of leads to other personal branding freelancers or agencies as well in the process. Um, but I think, yeah, my personal brand has definitely been the reason why we've scaled so quickly. And we hired um, a new employee two weeks ago, um, and she's also now just getting a couple of leads through her personal brand on LinkedIn. So I think eventually we'd l- I'd love to have a team of people building their personal brands and loads of leads coming in that way. You talked about illness just then, and there's been a couple of times for me when I've, I, my, the, you know, the podcast, I haven't put anything out and my events business is still very much in the planning stage. And we're looking to have, we we're going to have an event at the end of this year, but that got scrapped, um, which I'm really annoyed about. Um, I was just about to start promoting it. So now we're going to have to go into next year, hopefully first couple of months of next year. We were supposed to have one in November, then we should, that got cancelled, then we had to move it to December. That one couldn't go ahead. So now, fingers crossed, next year. It's all been stuff kind of outside of my control, but I felt after those massive, massive setbacks, I felt that um, I, I just burnt out and I haven't been able to do any work and everything kind of, you know, stopped. Um, so I was not recording any new podcasts. I was not working on my LinkedIn. I was I was literally just sat in bed doing nothing. And and I've re- I've since kind of understood that it was a burnout because I was working so 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 hard on something and then it kind of just got taken away from me for forces which were completely outside of my control, um, and burnouts are something which I'm still trying to understand how to deal with, and burnouts are kind of part of the startup reality which we we talked about in, earlier on this episode. I was just wondering how how do you react to a burnout and like how do you adapt to it? Um, so when I, funnily enough, when I first started, everybody was talking about burnout. It was almost like a trending topic on social media, and especially in the entrepreneur space. And I thought, to be honest, I didn't really quite believe it. I thought, well, why would you burn out? Like, just don't overwork yourself. It's as simple as that. And then I burnt out two months later and I thought, okay, so this is what it feels like. And for me, I, the mistake I made, I took on so much work in such a short period of time that I was working probably 14 hour days, seven days a week. And that's not an exaggeration. There were some days where it was 18 hour days. Um, and it was a lot of intense work. It was a lot of high stress work as well, managing clients, managing relationships, invoices, finances, etc. And that was the point where I was like, okay, I need to hire people into my team. So my solution to burnout was uh, anything that could be outsourced, I needed to outsource because that would, one, give me time um, and two, give me headspace and breathing space to just like relax and rest a little bit. So that's what I did. That's when I brought on a business coach, an accountant, uh, virtual assistants to do my admin, um, other copywriters into the team. And that was invaluable. So if you can afford to, I would definitely say, avoid burnout by outsourcing and allowing yourself to have more time as a business owner it, it is like really hard to to give yourself free time and not feel guilty about it because it's always something that you could do in a business like I think every day there's this idea and this idea and if I had unlimited time there's about 20 different projects that I'd love to work on but you have to just slow down a little bit and I think you have to hit burnout to fully understand that because I didn't understand the severity and the importance of it until burnout hit me and then you know I had a good three four months it was steady I was a bit more everything was a bit more stable and then I hired two full-time employees into the team and I don't think I fully understood how time-consuming and um, emotionally kind of turbulent that process can be for a founder because you're opening the doors of your business and giving trust in in people who you know don't fully understand your vision yet and you're just trusting them to deliver the same quality of service that, that you've become known for and that's really hard and I didn't give enough time to myself to review their review their content to give them good feedback to check in on them and so I messed up the kind of time commitments on, on my end. And that, again, meant I was working 16, 18 hour days. Um, so I think you've got to be realistic and you've got to plan in advance, not work kind of week to week, day by day. And a lot of freelancers get caught up in that because they think, okay, I can scale quickly. I'll get more clients. I'll do X, Y, Z. And sometimes you've just got to think, okay, slow down this time. You've always got more time to do things. So focus on one thing, nail it. 
then move on to the next thing. I think that's probably the best way to avoid burnout. I completely agree with you. Um, there's so much narrative on LinkedIn about like weekends are for the week, all that kind of stuff, um, which I think is super damaging. Um, if I think about the times when I've burnt out, because I, I burnt out for like two months, um, and it was kind of mid when I was doing my A levels as well, which um, you know wasn't great. Um, but if I think about where I would be now if I kind of had worked taking everything a bit slow, I think my, where I would be now would be a lot further on. Um, if I, if I kind of think about that in hindsight, um, and now another really interesting thing we discussed on the call earlier, um, well not earlier, a couple, a couple of weeks ago, um, was the, the fact that, um, the difference in education systems in like the private and state schools, the difference, um, in like financial literacy and what they're teaching. Um, and I thought when you, when you said it, um, I thought it was really interesting. So I've come from like a private school background. Um, I'm pretty open with that. Um, and um, we had, you know, successful entrepreneurs coming in to discuss how they made their money. We would have people coming in to teach us about the stock market and show us how you could make money with money. Um, and there were lots of opportunities that we were given. And then when you discussed it, I realized that other schools weren't getting the same opportunity. Um and I wanted you to kind of expand on on what I've just said because I think what you what you discussed was so so interesting. It's such a like tricky topic to speak about because as soon as you bring up in my personal experience, as soon as you bring up this kind of debate around privilege, typically from my experience, the most privileged people start to get defensive, and I think that's not helpful to the discussion. For me personally, growing up, um, I went to state schools and I never fully understood the opportunities that were out there for people to grab and, and take advantage of until I set up my own business and until I started networking with people on LinkedIn. And, you know, that was transformative. At school, I was taught how to budget, how to save money, how to get good deals on certain things that you'd buy I was never taught about how to make your money go further I was never taught how to invest I was never never taught about entrepreneurship or how to start a business and how to find different income streams and monetize a skill or a talent entrepreneurship was never really discussed as as a route to go down it was always a nine-to-five office job and that was kind of glamorized uh, working for a reputable company and by reputable I mean a big known brand Uh, for me I Moving forward, I don't think I'd ever want to work for a brand like that now. I love the startup world. I think there's so much opportunity to do amazing things in that in that world that's not spoken about enough in schools or colleges even. Um, at university, I obviously got a bit more exposure, but even then, um, I think universities could do a lot more to connect degrees and acad- academia and teaching to the real world, which is slightly disconnected, I would say, at the moment, and how those things kind of mesh and blend together. I think, yeah, there's a massive, massive financial literacy gap. Um, and until I, again, came onto LinkedIn, I wasn't aware of it. Now, even speaking to my friends who aren't business owners and who went to the same school as me and grew up in the same kind of environment and context, even speaking to some of them, their understanding of what a good salary is, is way below average is way below the average kind of salary. And some of them have considered that to be a good salary. Now that is purely down to a lack of financial education. Um, and it's pre- it's prevented them in the past from asking for pay rises or um, doing things because doing things to basically leverage and improve their career. Whereas somebody in a different context, when I speak to uh, people in the business world who have come from more privileged backgrounds and maybe went to a grammar school or a private school and maybe has business maybe has parents who are business owners or somebody in their family who who's been very successful in the entrepreneurship world their understanding of money and their expectations around salary are completely different and I think it perpetuates this really toxic cycle where the most privileged people get ahead and everyone else is kind of, there's a barrier. You can do so much and then that's it. And I think I, I'm very vocal about this on LinkedIn. I, I've shared like as a business, what Yellow Hippo is doing financially. I've shared all, our revenue. I've shared how much money has been spent where. Because I want other people to see that. Like I want to break down this like taboo and stigma around finance, especially for people from underprivileged backgrounds who 
who, who for those people, finance is like a, almost like a scary thing to get into. And money is like a difficult conversation to have. And I don't think it should be. I'm going to try and respond to that. I think, um, I yeah, I make, you know, no bones about it. I've come from a privileged background. You know, my parents have had good jobs with, with nice salaries and I've been to a private school and I'm a white man. So in terms of the privileged side of things, I completely agree that... Um, that I'm privileged. And it's interesting you talk about education because when we had guest speakers, and I know for a fact that they they, they didn't take any money, um, it was all pro bono stuff. And, I, and part of me wonders why other schools can't do the same thing. And I, I'm, I don't know if you'd agree with me on this. And then also secondly, in terms of when we, we had like um, stock market experts come in to, to do like stock market simulations, and we'd all give, you know, a hundred pounds of whatever their currency was, like a fake currency, and we'd have to see we could grow it. And that, that that did cost money um, in, in transparent. I know it did. But we did that instead of a school trip, I remember. Um, and we did that quite young. And, it, and I wonder why why you think that state schools potentially aren't taking that route to that private schools are. Uh, okay, good question. Um, I think there's probably two or three reasons uh, that just come to my head immediately. One of them, I think, is a failure and it's quite a strong way of putting it, but a failure of many state schools to see beyond hitting uh, grade benchmarks, right? And I think this this is a bigger problem than just within a school. It's kind of how the whole education system is set up. It's designed for people to get certain grades so they can progress to the next stage of their journey, right? And so a lot of state schools um, don't have the privilege of having a cohort of students who are guaranteed to kind of pass all their GCSEs, A-levels, and get good grades. And so a lot of time and effort is put on the grades, getting people to pass their results, and that is a priority in state schools. Um, So I think that, again, in a sense, is a lack of privilege for people working in state schools. They don't have that extra time and resource to put into those things because you know, they're, they're judged based upon their grades ultimately. And again, that's a bigger problem in the, in the kind of education sector. Um, so that's one thing that I would say. Another thing is, it's a tricky one because you said when people come into schools, you know, to give talks and stuff, from my experience, because uh, I have family members and some friends who, are, who went to private schools, um, a lot of those kind of relationships, uh, they might not be paid directly when a guest speaker comes into to a school, but they might be... Um, connected to people in that organization right they might socialize in the same circles um and they might also have other ways you know they might be um, an ambassador for the school or they might be part of the the board or etc they might fund the school and therefore those soft relationships i think are really important as well and a lot of state schools don't have that they don't have those contacts. They don't have somebody, you know, a lot of people, let's face it, who are really successful and earn a lot of money, don't want to be associated with a failing school that that um, Ofsted is on the back of because it's not good for their brand. And, and ultimately, something has to change in that sense because, again, it just perpetuates that inequality gap. But I don't know what you think about that from coming from a, a different kind of perspective. Honestly, I completely agree with you. Um, thinking about it, I, I do know that some of our guest speakers were friends with parents from the school. So yeah, now you mentioned, I didn't realise it when I said it originally, but yeah, you're right. Um, yeah, I think it's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to start the show because I understand it that we we had exposure to these type of people, but other people didn't. Um, and I could have, there was e- there could, easy ways that I could have monetized this, you know, by setting the podcast up on Patreon and, you know, um, making people pay to to watch or listen but i didn't because i understand that it's important for everybody to have the same exposure and inspiration by speaking to talented people um and i I do understand what you're saying it's difficult to kind of um to figure out how it can be changed because i think the the massive inequality that we're having i don't see how it will stop and i'm just trying to understand i'm just trying i'm wondering if you if you have any ideas of how um you know the education system could change in order for this provision to be made for everybody? Okay, so I think it is like such a big question. Um, and if I had the answer, I probably wouldn't have a personal branding agency and I'd be working in the education sector. But um, I think one big thing is kind of restructuring the entire system and what we prioritise in, in education. And it, it has an 
it hasn't, I think, will for a long time be grades and academic grades that are a tick box against somebody's name to allow them to progress. And we almost define somebody's ability or worth or value in the working world based upon a degree or how many GCSEs they got or how many A-levels and, and what grades they, they were at. I think uh, maybe a more, a more successful way of easing that transition from education to the working world would be to bridge that gap by creating more integrated um, learning ways to learn. So not just sitting in a classroom writing things down and, and memory recall because let's face it a lot of education is just memory recall you learn a fact you memorize it you write it down in an exam or analyze it and, and then write it down and then you forget about it if you asked me if like if i sat a a biology gcse paper today i i wouldn't do that well i don't think or like a physics paper or any paper apart from geography because i did a degree in that one but I mean, I don't think I'd do that well because I was just learning things to regurgitate. And I got like, I think nine or 10 A stars at GCSE, but I don't think I'd get any of those grades anywhere near that now. So clearly there's something not quite there, right? It's clear there's a gap. What I would suggest if if, if I had like a magic wand and was in charge perhaps, um, would be to bring in more actionable, practical ways of learning that directly apply to the business world. So I think it'd be amazing if employers would partner with schools um, and not just grammar schools or private schools, <laughs> but across the board and and create pathways into that organisation. And, you know, apprenticeships are on the rise now. I think apprenticeships are amazing um, as an alternative um, to kind of college or or higher education, but I should, don't think apprenticeships should be an alternative. I think there's an opportunity to bridge those. So, you know, part learning at school or college, and then part working or, or learning a vocational skill that will directly tr- translate into a career. I think that might be a, be a way to value people rather than their test score, their ability to contribute to a workplace, their ability to take an idea and have the freedom and to, to just kind of be creative and turn a concept or an idea into something that they're passionate about. I think it's too rigid. If, if I had to summarise this, because I'm, I'm aware I'm just kind of going on now. If, if everything's a bit rigid in, the, in terms of structure. And I think it shouldn't be like that because it doesn't work for everybody. And your and you're a divergent kid is not going to get the same opportunities or benefit from the education system as it is, as somebody who is um, non-neurodivergent, right? Or neurotypical. So... To me, that already is just presents a problem. Schools and especially private schools are set up for a minority of people that doesn't represent the entire cohort, and therefore those people are getting ahead much faster than everybody else. And to me, that 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 needs changing, right? Typically, from uh, people in private schools, I know that lots of my friends, um, their families own businesses meaning that kind of entrepreneurship was in their genetics. I'm the same, my grandfather, both of my grandfathers run their own businesses. Um, and um, my mum was going to start her own, but she didn't in the end. But potentially, I think, I, I honestly think entrepreneurship isn't for everyone. That's the first thing. That's the first thing I believe. Now, do you think perhaps it's more promoted in private schools because they think that, and I don't agree with this, just like for complete transparency, but they think that it's better received because they kind of already have the, not genetics, but you know what I mean, like the socialization, but they want to become an entrepreneur or entrepreneurship is more what they want to do. Whereas potentially in, in state schools, they don't. I don't agree with that, but that might be their rationale. Yeah. Um, no, I, I agree with you in that sense. Um, and it's in, in a way it's partly true. If I go back to high school, um, or even college, entrepreneurship was like, almost like a foreign word to so many people, and like me included. I never even understood or never thought I can just start a business. It wasn't even just like something on my radar. I always thought you have to get a job, a grad scheme, and then you have to work your way up this career ladder until you're like 45, and then you'll hit the certain salary point because that's when you're allowed to hit it because you've you've proven yourself. When actually, um, like I used to think... Um, a 30k salary is like something to aspire towards and for a lot of people it is if you look at the average of, of earning in, in in this country and you look at the top kind of five ten percent 30k is nothing absolutely nothing and i think it's 
people can only aspire towards what they're exposed to and what they can see as available to them. And so it's not obviously, it's never a fault of that person. It's the fault of the system that doesn't allow those people to believe or see that that is possible. Um, like even in, in, in school, like apprenticeships when I was growing up wasn't a thing. Now they're becoming more more of like a viable route into a career and a very good route into a career as well. But yeah, I would agree with you completely. I don't think school should just teach about the benefits. They should also teach about the downfalls and, and the, the drawbacks of entrepreneurship because there are some. I think the other thing is, which is a really important thing that we haven't touched upon yet in this in this context is representation and being able to see yourself in the industry for example when i like if you asked me to name a like a pakistani marketer for example just just to give just as like you know an example um i couldn't i i <clears throat> i couldn't for probably two three years um even when i started on linkedin i could count on one hand i had probably 15 16000 followers in my just people had followed me and on my news feed I could probably count on like one or two hands how many people there were who were like me or who looked like me. And then for the first time, I met up with somebody through LinkedIn who was, um, her name's Sabika Ashraf, and you should go follow her on LinkedIn if, if you haven't. But she is um, a Pakistani Muslim um, person working in this creative industry. And the creative industry is just not really a thing. Um, growing up for me, for someone who came from my culture, it's, it's you know, there's certain academic routes you go down. Uh, the creative sector on entrepreneurship isn't really one of them. And we met up for the first time in person. And it was so weird. Like, it was so liberating because I've met up with loads of people from LinkedIn. And our conversation that we had was so completely different to every other conversation because we looked at each other and we are like, we're, we're, what we're doing is so much more important. Like, we have a responsibility that most other people wouldn't think about because... For us, there was nobody kind of, at least that we were aware of, kind of paving the way. Um, so, so now when I post on LinkedIn, when I talk about my business, when I do podcasts, etc., when I go into organisations and work with universities, it's so important that I say yes to those opportunities, even if I'm not getting paid for it. Because for somebody else who was in my boat or was in a position like me, they're going to see somebody who's like done it, who didn't have like a load of privilege. I'm not saying I'm underprivileged at all. Like I'm from a middle-class family, but even in that sense, I didn't know business. I didn't know another business owner. I didn't know the opportunities that were available to me. So I think visibility is also massively important for people to become entrepreneurs or just kind of elevate their career. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, um, yeah, I, I was asked on a podcast, it was about education and stuff like that. Um, and education obviously isn't a, a context which I'm super proficient in, you know, um, like business entrepreneurship, that's kind of the stuff I normally talk about. Um, but actually it was probably one, the, actually no, not one of them, the most interesting chat I've had um, because it was all about inspiring people to into entrepreneurship and giving them that exposure to it um, in more of like an educational sense. So that was really interesting. Yeah, so I think my final question, this is kind of taking a bit more of a turn. If you could describe a good or successful entrepreneur in three words, what would they be and why? <laughs> that's a good end, end question um i think uh, okay i've got one word that comes straight to mind is transparent transparency is so so important um i think you know i see a lot of entrepreneurs on linkedin and other social media platforms and what they've done is created an image of what they think they should be as an entrepreneur which actually isn't their reality where they've inflated numbers or left out particular details to seem more impressive and successful than they are. And that to me is, is not entrepreneurship. That is ego building and that's totally inauthentic. So I think one thing you have to be is transparent because when you're transparent, you're, you're actually setting yourself up for more opportunities. Every time I post on LinkedIn a really kind of raw, vulnerable post about entrepreneurship, I tend to get a business lead, um, which is you'd expect the opposite when I talk about failure on LinkedIn more people want to work with me because it's relatable um so transparency is super important also for all the conversations that we've just had um in terms of access and visibility and representation and that kind of stuff another one is resilience and this is why I don't think entrepreneurship is for everybody because you have to have a certain level of strength and emotional 
resilience to 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 last. Um, things go wrong and things hit hard, and there's less stability, there's less security than a typical job, and you have to be able to take that risk and kind of yeah to be to take the hits. And also, again, I'm privileged in that sense where I haven't really had any kind of serious mental health issues or. Um, you know, I had some savings to, to cover my rent if the business kind of collapsed. But so I'm aware not everyone can do it in that sense. Um, but yeah, I think resilience is massively important. And also the third one I would say is you have to be able to work with people, whether that's your employees, your clients. You know, there's so many people that reach out to me to, to try to sell Yellow Hippo a service and I jump on a call with them. And I... It, it's, it's kind of bad to say this, and but we all do it. We all kind of judge somebody and their ability to provide us value based on their character, right? So you have to be able to not only sell yourself, but be somebody that people want to work with. And that's super important, especially when you're building a team, which I'm currently going through right now. And it's why I've left previous roles because I wasn't fully happy in the kind of team dynamic. And so being able to work with people well is without it like you, you can't build a business i completely agree with you um i've actually realized since working in teams that my interpersonal sensitivity or my ability to work as a team is shocking i think i get frustrated quite easily um if you know if work doesn't get done i think i'm always a person like come on guy like uh, i guess a bit of a motivator but sometimes i can rub off the wrong way and since um i recorded it was a few episodes ago about mindset I realized that this was something I need to work on and I've completely changed the way that I approach group projects and group work, um, which is good. Um, I think I'm now better, um, better at working, um, in teams, but I think, I think that, that, that is everything for today. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on. This is by far the longest uh, episode I've ever recorded. I feel like I went on for some answers. (laughs) Absolutely. No worries. It was really interesting. Um, but I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. No worries. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Enterprising Gen Z podcast. If you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening from. If you want to find out more about Yellow Hippo or more about Schwabe, all the relevant links will be in the show notes below. If you want to find out more about the podcast, go to egzpod.com or our socials, which are at Enterprising Gen Z Pod on Instagram and on TikTok. If you fancy connecting with me on LinkedIn, I've put my LinkedIn in the description as well. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next week with another episode. Bye for now.